You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. Chapter number one, and uh, first Thessalonians chapter number one, and I want to start by, well, let's, let's start by reading first Thessalonians chapter, I said chapter one, first Thessalonians chapter five, verse number one. And we're starting into a new chapter here, and we can tell that by the, the first word uh, and even the phrase that he follows up on here, as he all, Paul often does. But he says this, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. All right, so that kind of goes back. Remember, we were talking about the coming of the Lord, the, the second coming. Last week we were talking about the rapture. And once again, he's just saying, guys, it's not important the day. It's not important the hour. Um, that's not what he said. You don't even have a need that I write that to you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And they shall not escape. And we're going to pause right there for a moment. And I want to, I want to, uh, we're taking a view here, 1 Thessalonians. There's the, the mention of the second coming. And again, it's so interesting to me to find that both when he's dealing with the rapture, and now as you get into chapter number five, he's dealing with what's known oftentimes as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord speaks prophetically of the time of God's judgment that leads into God's ruling on this earth, the day of the Lord. But in both cases, or I should say in neither case, is God trying to uh, teach us all the answers uh, to the questions that we may have concerning the rapture of the second coming. And each time, it's interesting, there's, there's a practical application both times. He just lets you know, hey, it's happening, and therefore, this ought to be your attitude about it. Don't be worrying, don't be sorrowing, continue to work and stay encouraged. But uh, think about this. When we, when we, so we're going to continue about thinking about the, the coming of the Lord. You know, when we preach about the Bible and salvation, we emphasize the spiritual side concerning Christ's coming, right? So I was th- thinking about Christmas because the t- I titled tonight's message, The Government Shall Be on His Shoulders. The government shall be on his shoulders. And I know there's some people thinking, did he hit his head? Did he slip and hit his head on ice? Does he not know that he shared Isaiah 9, 6 every single uh, church service for the past three or four weeks? Yes, I do know that I've shared it with you uh, for the last several weeks. And I hope by now you have it memorized. But here's what it says. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And, uh, and you look at verse 7. Can you get that up there, Christian? Because I didn't put that in my notes. I figure you can do it quicker than I can start misquoting it. There we go. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God is going to perform all that He said. Again, what's He going to perform? A child being born, a son being given, and the government being on His shoulders. Now, if you'll bear with me tonight, we're going to really go into Bible study mode here a little bit because I want to share a number of passages with you. Consider with me some Christmas passages, all right? So I'm going to start with Mark, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 2, verse number 2. Why would I not start in Mark? We'll do this as a trivia question. Why would I not go to Mark for my Christmas verse uh, reference? Don't find it in there. Not in there. Uh, it, do, it doesn't take the time because it's in, the emphasis is of, of the servant of Jehovah, well, or the slave of Jehovah, which Jesus says, I've come to do the will of the, the Father. That's what's emphasized in Mark. Well, the genealogy of a slave isn't important. And that's why it's not emphasized there in the book of Mark. But in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, saying, Where is he that is born king? 
of the Jews. King of the Jews. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Epaphrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from, from old, from everlasting. And then Matthew 2, 6 is the New Testament quotation of that. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not thou least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. So, so he's been called a king. Uh, in Micah it said he's going to be a ruler. In Matthew it says he's going to be a governor. He's going to rule Israel. In Luke chapter 1... Uh, we see uh, uh, Mary's song of praise. And in verses 51 and 52, here's what she says. He hath showed strength with His arm. He hath showed strength with His arm. Now, I'm pausing to emphasize that because this is language that, uh, that, that harkens back to Exodus. When God showed His arm, when God showed His mighty hand of deliverance from the bondage of the children of Israel that they had there within Egypt. So she is saying that with a strong arm, with the strength of his arm, he hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats. He hath exalted them of low degree. Uh, I'll read Matthew one twenty one. The Bible says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now, this is a cool thing. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Now, what does anybody know what that relates to in the Old Testament? The name Jesus? No, Joshua. That's right. So if you put Joshua's name, the Hebrew name Joshua, into the Greek, guess what you get? You get Jesus. Matter of fact, there's a place in the New Testament where it calls Joshua Jesus. And it can be confusing if you're just reading it and you think, wait, what was Jesus doing there? But it's talking about Joshua because it's the same name. Now, what did Joshua do? Joshua was a mighty captain. He was a mighty savior, if you will. And he went in as a man of war and conquered the promised land, and delivered that which belonged to the people of God into the people of God's hands. And that's the picture there. He shall save His people. So understand this terminology. Understand the language. Understand the perspective of these, of, of these Hebrews, of these people that were living in this time. Mary's thinking about Exodus. The, the angel speaking to uh, to. Joseph or Mary in that passage. You can look it up. But, but the angel speaking is, is hearkening back to Joshua and thinking, well, what did Joshua do? Joshua was a mighty ruler. Joshua was a mighty uh, military man. He was a general. Um, something I skipped that I want to take. I'll have to go over there and read it because I don't have it in my notes. But Luke 1, this is in the prayer or in, in the song of Zechariah. In the song of Zechariah, we see in Luke 1, Verse number 67. Anybody know how many times Luke's name is mentioned in the New Testament? We're not talking about on every page of Luke. We're not including that you know, at the top of the page. Uh, I believe it's three times. you believe that? Three times. Luke was actually one of those uh, very underrated behind-the-scenes laborers. We don't think of him that way because his name is on one of the Gospels, but he was actually a behind-the-scenes guy. Uh, but he was a brilliant guy, and the, and the book of Luke is written, it is, it is literally a, uh, a beautiful piece of literature written in kind of in the Greek style, because he, that's, kind of, that's the way he was schooled. But, but nevertheless, in Luke 1, in Ze Zechariah had a song, the, the father of John the Baptist. And here's how his song went, in verse 67. And his father, Zacharias, was was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He hath visited and redeemed His people. I'm going to be making an emphasis on what he's talking about there in just a moment. But so think about that, redeemed His people. And hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. 
Again, this language, a horn of salvation, that horn talks about strength. That horn talks about overcoming. You know, it's like when there's two, two goats going at each other, the one with the biggest horns is normally the one that wins, you know, and the same thing with deer or whatever it may be. The horn of the Lord's salvation, the strength of God's salvation through his servant in the house of his servant David, verse 70, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. What covenant? The oath which He sware to our father Abraham, that He would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the land of our enemies might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. We'll pause right there, but uh, you can see What Zechariah was saying Jesus was coming to do, Jesus hasn't done yet. Now, this is is the reason the second coming was such a big deal to the first century church. I mean, and if you think about the first century church, those of the first century even before the church, but if you think about that first century church, it was primarily made of Jews. It was primarily made of Jewish people who would have been very familiar with all of these promises that that we see Mary referencing. We see Zacharias referencing. They would have known, that if if you remember Simeon and Anna, there in Luke chapter 2, they both were just like, oh my goodness, He's here. The Messiah, the promised one, the one who's going to come deliver us from our enemies, who's going to redeem us from our enemies. He's going to give us the land back. We're going to be out from under Rome. They were living a pretty, they were, they had a lot of, they had a good amount of liberty under the Roman government, but they were still under the Roman government. And they were unable to truly have their king and to rule and to have that which God would eventually have them to have. They were all looking. So you've got to understand that when the Messiah was going to come, you know, we can hear what we want to hear sometimes. And I'll tell you for sure what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that the government shall be upon his shoulder. They wanted to hear that he's going to be the king. All of those things are true. The problem is, it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time yet. And there's some very practical lessons that we can learn from this too that I may have time to allude to in just a moment. But the second coming of Christ, folks, is literally... And what we now call the second coming, the Jews were looking for to happen in His first coming, the first advent. Uh, but it, it didn't happen yet. But that's what, the old, that's what the Old Testament was building toward, building toward, building toward. That's really so much of what it's about. As a matter of fact, the Bible without the second coming doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense. It's like half, uh, half especially if you try to do the, what the problem is, those who take certain parts literally but turn the rest of it into an allegory, what happens there is it just doesn't, it doesn't flow anymore. But folks, the Bible does flow, and the Bible is right, and we do take it literally because God meant it to be taken that way. And again, we talked about what literally means. Uh, and isn't it funny that literally no longer means literally? <laughs> you know, uh, literally, you know, if somebody says it's literally 200, you know, 200 below zero outside, and, and it's like, well, no, it's not. Um, by the way, am I the only one? I... I once it gets this cold, man, I kind of quit looking at the stinking temperature anyway. I'm depressed enough as it is. I'm just like, you know what? It's cold. Cold outside, no, it don't need to see it. That's kind of how I am looking at the scale as well. Um, seriously. But, now, have you ever asked yourself what's wrong with the world? Well, no, I haven't come to think. I'm sure we probably all have. Um, let me tell you something. When Adam fell... In the Garden of Eden, he not only lost his soul, so to speak. God said, in the day you eat over there, you shall surely die. But he lost more than that. He also forfeited his dominion of the world under God. And the dominion of the world then fell into the hands of Satan. Satan is called in a number of different occasions the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Now, somebody says, well, that's the God of this age. Well, yes, it is the God of this age, but what age? 
I would say the age of fallen man, the time of man's fall. He showed what he owns while tempting Jesus. You say, preacher, I don't know what you're saying right there. Think about this. The temptation of Jesus Christ. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, says Satan, if you bow down and worship me. Matthew 4, 8 through 9. You can read a little bit more about that. Jesus didn't say, man, what you talking about? <laughs> you going to give me the king? The kingdoms of the world are already mine. Jesus didn't say that. You know why? Because they weren't. They're in the hands of Satan. That's why he could offer it to him. That's why Jesus didn't rebuke him or say, what are you even talking about, man? All right? And there's many other examples of this, but I'm not going to go into a ton of detail on that right now. But what I'm trying to take, talk about is redemption right now, redeeming. All right? The title deed for the planet slipped into Satan's grip. The title deed for this world as it is. So sin entered the world, and then since man chose sin, it's like a lot of other things, right? God gave man free will. When God gives man free will, he chooses stuff, and there are consequences to our decisions, right? And there was a major consequence to Adam's decision, and it set a lot of things in motion. Now, Jesus, one of the reasons that He came in human form is so that He could redeem that which was lost by sin. Hebrews chapter 2 is another very powerful verse about the incarnation. The incarnation which we normally would refer to as the Christmas story, that God becoming flesh. But in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, here's what it says. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood... He also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. Think about that. It says Satan had the power of death, power over death. But he came to, he came to conquer death so that he would now have the power of death and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily, listen to this, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things per pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. There's an ancient law in the Old Testament that's pretty cool. It's called the law of the kinsman redeemer. And the idea was if that, that you, as a Jewish person, you inherited land. There was land that was put into your family. But if you were somehow to go in debt for that land, and you had to mortgage that land, what would happen is, if, if you were unable to pay for that mortgage and you went in debt, you would become indebted and basically enslaved to another person. And there's instances to where you weren't supposed to sell to an outsider, a stranger, but there was times when that would happen. Now all of a sudden, you have this stranger that basically you're a slave to because of what you owe him, all right? And the problem is, is you owe him and you owe him and you owe him and you can't ever get out of debt, so what would happen is, is the law would allow for a brother or a, someone who was near of kin to say, you know what, I'm going to pay the price. I mean, it was a pretty merciful and gracious thing to do because it would mean that that person, that kinsman, would pay the price to the, the stranger so that his brother could now inherit that which he lost. In other words, he would redeem that price. He would redeem his brother. He would redeem that land. And he would put it all back, in, back into the name of his brother that lost it all. So the picture is, is that Adam, when he lost it all, he lost it all for himself, yes. But just like is often the case, what happens when someone who is a slave and in bondage, what happens when they have a child? Well, guess what? That child's automatically a slave as well. And just right on down the line it goes. And so that's, that's how mankind was. So Jesus said, well, I'll come. Because when it comes to our sin especially, but it's not just about sin, it really is about the world and dominion and land, but, it's, but when you put it, put it with our sin, uh, we, uh, the reason we can't pay is because we've all sinned. So we automatically go in debt ourselves. We're born into sin, 
But as soon as we have any knowledge, we, we, we're sinners by birth, but here's what gets you, then we're sinners by choice. Uh, you know, a, a kid doesn't get in trouble with God for being born into sin. You understand that? A child that borns, or even someone who, who, who dies that never has a mental capacity to be able to understand or comprehend, I mean, listen, that, that person, they're sinners still, but they're sinners by birth, but they've never known their sin. They, they've, never, uh, they've never come to that knowledge because uh, they, they've never become sinners by choice, so to speak, of knowing what they were doing. But we all become sinners by, by choice as well. But so what Jesus did is He says, I will be the one, I will become like you. I will become your kinsman. I will become related to you, but I'm not going to sin. And I'm never going to sin. I don't have the ability to sin, but I'm going to come pay the price of your ransom. Okay, how much does He owe? Well, uh, the wages of sin is death. That's the price. That's the price that has to be paid. Okay, then I'll pay it. I'll give my life. But since he's Jesus, he was able to lay down his life and he was able to rise up again. Now, we, and rightly so, emphasize the spiritual side of that because that's really the, the important thing right now. Jesus paid the pr price to redeem you from your sin that you, might be made, that you might be reconciled because sin not only makes you a slave, but it also puts you at enmity with God. It puts you at odds with God, makes you an enemy of God. But Jesus came to make peace. He came to do it all. But it's not just about the spiritual side, but the spiritual side we see in Romans 5, 19, where the Bible says, For as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. You can read Romans 5 there, and it tells you a lot more about that. The self-righteous Jews didn't get this. I don't know if you remember this or not, but Jesus had a conversation with the Pharisees one time and, and Jesus was trying to express to them that they were in bondage. And He said, no, we're not in bondage and we're not slaves. And He says, oh yeah, yeah, you are. And, uh, and, and basically it was the conversation when Jesus was having him. He's like, no, He said, you guys are just like your father. And He said, what are you talking about like our father? Abraham's our father. And He's like, no, you're like your father, all right. I mean, man, you talk, man, Jesus, people... people People get this whole flowery, hippie Jesus in their minds, man. This, listen, Jesus didn't play. All right, now when, let me tell you something. Here's the thing you got to understand. When it came to broken, low-down sinners, man, you see, a, you, see some, you, a, you see a Savior of love, mercy, and compassion. Amen? But when it came to this self-righteous, nose-up-in-the-air religious crowd, Jesus didn't pull any punches at all. He, he's talking to these guys. And he's almost playing with these guys. Yeah, you're like your father. What do you mean we're like our father? Abraham's our father. Yeah, yeah, you're like your father, all right. We've, well, Abraham's our father. No, no, I mean, you're like your father, the devil. See, the devil was a liar, and you're a bunch of liars. The devil's a hypocrite, and you're a bunch of hypocrites. That's what Jesus told him. I mean, he, he just sat right there in front of everybody. Why? Not to be mean, but because these people were leading people to hell, literally. They were leading people away from God. They were shutting up the kingdom of heaven. Think about this, 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 the extent of this redemption. Uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, and again, I'm sharing a lot of verses with you tonight. Romans chapter 8, verse 21. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. The creature there meaning the creation. Listen again. The creature, the creation itself, shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into, glor into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. In other words, redemption, the, the, the what am I trying to say? The, the, the process of redemption is not yet completed. Now Jesus paid it all, but we haven't seen the full, the, the adoption to wit. We haven't seen it fully uh, come to pass. He's saying there that the creation is ready to fall back into the hands fully of God Almighty again. It's waiting for that to happen. Interesting, right? At least I hope you think it is. I don't know. But anyway, I think it is. And, and then on top of that, he's saying, man, and, and we're ready for our redemption to be complete. In other words, our bodies. 
We're ready for the redemption of our bodies. And that's, of course, going to happen for us. It's going to happen at the rapture. I mentioned earlier about the title deed of the earth going into Satan's hands. In Revelation 5, and I'm not going to take time to read that, but if you go read Revelation 5, that's when John and everybody's all upset because there's this book that nobody's worthy to open. But Jesus is able to stand there and He puts one foot on the, on the shore and He puts one foot in the sea and He takes that title deed and they rejoice and they praise and say, worthy is the Lamb because He's taken back the title deed to the earth. And he's putting one foot on the sea, one foot on the shore, and he's saying, I'm reclaiming it. I'm redeeming it. I am saying, time's up Satan. Time's up sin. I'm putting in, uh, I'm claiming this back. Uh, in Daniel, uh, uh, look at this real quick. I got, I got this, uh, the picture. You familiar with this picture? Right? Uh, the, 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 the colossal image of Nebuchadnezzar and, and those, uh, those, that image, each one's a different type of gold and it represents the different kingdoms. It represents the times of the Gentiles which go all the way back to, 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 Babylon, to, uh, to Babylon and all the way up until the place where we are now. The time of the Gentiles. The rule of the Gentiles. That's where we've been. And in other words, the government... The title of this message is, The Government Shall Be On His Shoulders. It's not yet, but it's going to be. All right? But it's not yet. All right? And so, um, I'll read this. Uh, Roman, uh, Daniel 2, verse 34. Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which stone smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Uh, play the little video there, Christian. If you can. If it works. And while that's queuing up, if it's queuing up, I'll read Daniel 2, 44, where the Bible says, and in, and in the days of the king shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. Now, here we go. It's coming up. But, it, but it, shall be, it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest the stone that was cut out without the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, brass, clay, silver, gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain and the interpretation true. So you can go ahead and roll it. So what he's saying is that that symbolizes the, the time of the Gentiles all the way up until now. But he said, until a stone, Jesus is the stone, the rock that's been rejected by the builders is, 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 is cut out without hands. And it goes and it hits that image on the toes and it just totally obliterates. And what it's revealing right there is exactly what Mary, Zacharias, Simeon, Anna, every one of these people, the Jews, the apostles, that's what they were expecting. Wait, Jesus is the Messiah. That means He's the stone that's cut out without hands. That means He's going to destroy the, the rule of this earth. He's going to destroy the evil Gentile rule that's been on this earth. And He's going to take over. And that rock is going to fill the entire earth. In other words, that kingdom is going to fill the entire earth. That's what Christmas is about. The government shall... That's a big part of what it's about. The government shall be on His shoulders. But again, this has not yet been accomplished or fulfilled. Jesus, matter of fact, what you need to understand is the reason Jesus was rejected in the first place was because He didn't do that. Anybody remember the day when Jesus came into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey? Uh, you remember that? Alright, well here's the thing. Remember how excited the people were? But does anybody remember what, how Jesus reacted? Jesus didn't say, man, this is cool. Hey, do you hear that, guys? They're all saying my name. Dude, like, this is great. Anybody know how Jesus reacted to that? You read on through that, you read on through that triumphal entry, Jesus is weeping. He's weeping. Why? Because these people don't get it. The time is not now. And one of the places that was left off, there's all these promises in the Old Testament. Jesus is going to come. Jesus is going to rule. He's going to be the king. He's going to destroy all the nations of the earth and set up His own kingdom in this earth. But they kind of missed that part in Isaiah 53. Right? About, about, uh, about Him bearing our sins and, and taking our sins upon Him. About Him dying, being rejected and despised and so forth. They missed that part. 
because that's not really what they wanted to hear. They like the other part more. By the way, I'm not going to be able to get into this tonight, um, but be careful about just trying to hear what you want to hear. Because you talk about a practical application, what were these people looking out for? They were wanting what they wanted. And what they heard through all this, and it's true, what they were looking for, which is going to happen, was health, wealth, and prosperity. That's what they were looking for. Well, Jesus, where is it at here? Where is it at? And that's why the Jews rejected Jesus Christ. Um, historically, now I'm going to try to give this to you really quick, if you'll listen quick. I think we started late. That's one of the things I don't like about starting late, Chad. Is that, and I know I'm not supposed to look at the clock. We, we were talking about how we started today. It felt like old times. We're just kind of hanging around, hanging around. Uh, not a ton of us on a, on a cold, snowy night. And, uh, and it's, oh, well, I guess we might as well get started. But I'm like, oh, my gosh. But anyway, but I'll just give this to you uh, quick, whatever that means. Historically, the reason the second coming is lost upon so many, because if you, it, it could almost be mind-blowing if you actually start looking at the verses that talk about Jesus, God's kingdom on this earth. All right? So, most of our church, most of our church, come from either Catholicism or uh, Protestantism, right? Uh, most of our church came from either Protestant or Catholicism. So, if you were brought up in those traditions, one of the things you got to know is that, you do know, it's like, well, why did, well, I've never heard this preacher. I don't remember this in class. I don't remember everybody ever talking about this. Well, there's a reason why. Uh, the reason this is lost upon so many goes back to 312. First of all, I want to go back to 312 uh, uh, or 300 A.D. Constantine's rebranding of Roman paganism, which traces and Roman paganism traces its origins back to Babel. Uh, Christianity was taking the world, the, the Roman world, by storm. <laughs> by the way, how awesome is it? Do you think God may have known? when he allowed Rome to even be able to set up their kingdom and to build roads all throughout their empire and to make travel so easy for the gospel to spread and go. It was all by the providence of God. But Christianity, I mean, senators, Roman soldiers, I mean, there was getting to be a concern that there was actually enough Christians that if they wanted to, they could overthrow the Roman government. That's a problem. But there's a solution to that. Let's rebrand our form of paganism and let's brand it Christianity. Let's take all the different gods that we worship. It's interesting. Did you, did you know that Christians in the Roman Empire were often called atheists? That's what they were called. You want to know why? Because they only believed in one God. And they didn't believe in these other gods. They believed in one God. And so they were called atheists oftentimes, interestingly enough. But uh, so what they did is they literally rebranded and they took all these different gods they were, they were worshiping and they just gave them the names of different saints and folks. So that way you could still worship your gods. You just got to, you know, you can worship saint this and saint that and the other one. Now, I'm just telling you history. You're just, are you picking on? I'm not picking on nobody. I'm telling you uh, facts. But that's kind of, that's basically what happened. And that's why if you look at, have you ever, have you ever if you, especially if you come from Catholicism, you, you ever ask yourself, well, what was with all those weird rituals and things we did? Where did all, all that come from? Babel. <laughs> they come from Rome. It just came from a pagan religion that rebranded itself uh, as Christian, including, including a mother-child deity. The mother-child deity goes all the way back to ancient Babylon. Anyway, but I'm not going to go too far down that path. Uh, but I'm just telling you, study up on it yourself and you'll see that. Now, all right, so that's what happened in 300. Now, if you go back a little bit further, about 300 years before that, the first half of the first century, there was a Hellenistic Jew named uh, Philo. Philo. Philo of Alexandria. He lived from about 20 B.C. to about 40 A.D. He was a Hellenistic Jew. What, anybody know what a Hellenistic, what's it mean to be Hellenistic um, back in these days? It's basically the adoption of, 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 of Greek. So a Hellenistic Jew was a Jew that was thoroughly um, inundated, if you will, 
uh, with Greek society. You know, the, 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 the knowledge of the Greeks and the, and, and the, and the whatever. Just He was Greek, all right? I mean, he was Jewish, but he had adopted so many of these things. So a Hellenistic Jew, uh, Phileo of Alexandria, he attempted to combine philosophy, especially Aristotle, but he, he attempted to, to combine Greek philosophy because Greek philosophy was believed by some to be divinely inspired. So what Phileo did, he was a Hellenistic Jew, so he wanted to take the Mosaic law and combine it with the, 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 the philosophy of the Greek philosophers. But in order to do this, he had to make the law a complete allegory. He took the Mosaic law and made it to totally allegorical. Now, an, alle an, an allegory is the representation of abstract ideas or principles by characters, figures, or events in a narrative, dramatic or pictorial form, a symbolic representation. An allegory conveys a hidden meaning through the use of symbolic characters and events. In other words, uh, the, the story of the tortoise and the hare is an allegory. You know, you think there's many other, like a lot of what Aesop did, right? They're, they're, they're allegories. They're, they're, it's, it's not literally about a tortoise and a hare that had a race. But, that, but see, here's the problem with that. These philosophers, and, and Phileo in particular, he was putting the law of Moses on the same level as the tortoise and the hare. Don't kill. I wonder what that could mean. You know, that's uh, interesting. You know, allegorically speaking, what that probably means is, you know, blah, 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 just filling. They just made it all an allegory. And that way, but what he was doing, he could figure it out pretty quick because he's taking Greek philosophy and trying to mesh the two together. And they didn't go together if you take it as, uh, as, as literal. Okay, uh, so when the, uh, fast forward about another hundred years, and uh, I know so y'all are worried maybe, but maybe not. Anyway, fast forward about a hundred years when the, uh, when, there, when the school of Alexandria was established in the second century after Christ, it was built in part on Phileo's doctrine. The school mixed Greek philosophy and or Gnostic beliefs, Gnostic is secret, mystical, occult knowledge, with biblical teaching. They united philosophy and revelation. Along came, in the later part of the second century, Clement of Alexandria. And he applied the same principles of interpretation to the New Testament. So he took the New Testament and said, you know what? That's all allegorical. Because, again, Clement of Alexandria, like Phileo before him, said, you know what? We want to combine. If you just take this stuff literally, this is kind of nuts. God spoke and created the heavens and all that. That doesn't make sense. Believe me, they had a more far-fetched story of creation, but they went with that one. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, but, but, but that sounds ridiculous. Miracles? Resurrection? Jesus being God? Resurrected bodies and all this stuff? That's all allegory. None of that's real. That's, it's just what it stands for something else. That's what Clement of Alexandria did. His prized pupil was a man by the name of Origen, and he lived from about 185 to 253. And by the way, both of these guys are considered church fathers by some. They're church fathers, but they're not, uh, they're not our church fathers, um, thankfully. But uh, he released a, trans, a translation of the Bible, Origen did, from the school of Alexandria. And this, this version, this, this Greek translation was in opposition to the Antiochian Byzantine text that was used by the church. In other words, remember, during this whole time, this is the first, second, third century, the church of Jesus Christ is going strong. But down in Alexandria, Egypt, you got this crazy cult that was, that was understood to be a crazy cult that's trying to uh, mix these false, this, this cultish doctrine, this Gnostic doctrine, this Greek philosophy, and let's put the New Testament in there as well. And let's make Jesus a part of all this. That's what Colossians is addressing. So many of the other books are, are addressing some of these doctrines coming in there very early. I'm trying to tell you why, if you were Catholic or Protestant, why you, didn't, why you don't know about the second coming, okay, if you don't. So just bear with me. I'm about done. Uh, so he had a Greek translation 
by the way, which as you can imagine, how do you think the Christians of this time took to Origen's translation of the Greek New Testament? It's a total joke. Uh, I mean, you know, just a couple things about, uh, about Origen. Uh, oh, here, here's a couple things that he said. Origen taught many non-Christian doctrines. He stated that he would not hand down Christian teachings. Here's what he said. He's, he's trying to interpret the New Testament. And here's what he says. Uh, he would not hand down Christian teachings, pure and unmixed, but rather clothed with precepts of pagan philosophy. He admits this. Something else he said, the scriptures are of little use to those who understand them as they are written. I've mentioned a couple of, the, of these already. Uh, Origen believed, he believed that man was divine. He believed in baptismal regeneration. He believed in universalism. He, in other words, he believed that all men would be saved. He believed, he was, he, he's believed to be the first proponent of purgatory. Uh, that, that he made that up. He believed Christ was created. He believed Jesus was a created being. He taught transmigration, which is the belief that at death the soul passes into another body. He denied a literal interpretation of the Genesis creation account, and he taught that creation was a myth and there was never a person called Adam. He taught that Christ became God at his baptism. He denied the physical resurrection of believers. Does that seem to be important? <laughs> That's what Paul's been addressing through 1 Thessalonians. There's a, there's a lot of this. Now, Origen greatly influenced Eusebius. To, and Eusebius was from 260 to 340. Eusebius, he produced 50 copies of an ecumenical Bible. And by ecumenical, it's going to be a Bible that's accepted with the Gnostics. The Greek philosophers will be able to accept it. And we're going to do it from a Christian perspective. He was ordered by Constantine to come up with 50 of these Bibles, all right? Constantine is remembered for a lot of things, but the thing that he did was he established the Catholic Church as the state religion, and he chose uh, Origen's Greek, uh, Greek New Testament to use for the version that they would use for their church. Now, they could have used the, 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 the version of the Bible that was coming out of Antioch, Syria, where they were called Christians first, that Christians were using, but Constantine was not interested in that. He was interested in a version that would include and maybe not be so offensive to other religions and pagan religions and so forth. Now, the dismissal of the literal interpretation of the second coming of Christ, so in other words... To them, the second coming of Christ was an allegory. Just fast forwarding here. And, and I hope there's at least one person that's still with me, okay? To them, the, 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 the allegorizing of the second coming, the allegorizing of so much promised scripture kind of had to take place. You know why? Because if you remember, they wanted to have a kingdom on earth. The Roman Empire, they wanted to rule the world. Well, now they're calling themselves a church and Christian. And now they're saying, well, no, no, no. There's not a visible kingdom to come. There's a visible kingdom right now. We are the kingdom. We are the visible kingdom of God. There is no, no, no. There is no. Uh, and, and, and we have a man now. We have a man. And this is what the Pope became and still is considered. We have a vicar on earth that can rule in Christ's place on earth in this kingdom. He said, okay, well, that helps me if I come. And by the way, that explains a lot. That explains so much. Not the least of which is the militant and ruthless spreading of Catholicism. I'll tell you something. You need to understand this and understand it well. There was never, there's never been a case in history that I've ever been able to find to where Bible-believing Christians that are following the New Testament out of Antioch, Syria, uh, have ever tried to kill somebody to get them to convert. That's not what we do, because we follow the New Testament. But if you believe your church is the kingdom on earth, you get a lot more militant attitude. And you think you're doing God's service by forcing people. So the killing of Muslims, and we know a lot of, there was a lot of Muslims killed in the wars, the Crusades, uh, which to me is just the, the most ironic thing ever for a truly a Christian school to name themselves uh, the Crusaders. is just 
ridiculous to me. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Uh, they just literally went killing people, you know, convert or die. I mean, and it breaks your heart. You think about Latin America. You want to know why Latin, so, many, so much of Latin America is, is Catholic? Well, that kind of works pretty well when it's either you convert or you get killed. That's what you got left. That's what Catholicism, and, and again, you say, well, it sounds like, you're talking bad about Catholicism? No, I'm just telling you the history of Catholicism. Recorded by, anybody want to guess? Catholicism. <laughs> All this history that I can tell you about the Catholic Church, you get from the Catholic Church. They, they kept these records meticulously themselves. These aren't accusations. It's just literally reading the history. Um, okay, so they were ruthless. So true Christians, by the way, because they did kill the Muslims, they did kill anybody else, but you don't know, you know who else they were killing? Us, our people, the Spanish Inquisition. Literally, Bible-believing Christians were being killed by the millions, by the millions, underneath the persecution of the Catholic Church in this day. Uh, you, man, it's amazing. that the, it, it, You see the miracle of the church when you realize that it was able to go on in persecution. Now, let me, let me fast forward here, and I'm li I've literally got uh, two, real, uh, one, two short paragraphs left. The Reformation was born, right? The Reformation was born of men. So fast forward another, you know, 1,200, 1,300 years. The Reformation was born of men who strongly took a literal interpretation of Scripture. What was it that Martin Luther read? For by grace are you saved through faith. Salvation's by grace. He took that literal. He was not taught to take that literal, but he began to take it literal. John Knox, Calvin, just right down the line. They took most of these things literal. But you've got to remember something. I've said this before, but it's so important to understand. They were reformers. So what are they trying to do? They saw the Catholic Church. They did not get the, they did not really grasp the origin of the Catholic Church, and they just thought it was a good thing gone bad. It was terribly corrupt at this time, and, and, and it just needed to be fixed. So we're going to reform it. We're going to fix it. But one of the things that didn't need to be fixed, they didn't need to fix the idea of the church being the visible kingdom of God on earth. They didn't need to fix the literal nature of Jesus said He's coming again. True Bible believers have always believed this. But, the, but the, that's one of the things that the Protestants did not embrace. Therefore, uh, you see hopefully why down to, through the ages, it just didn't get passed down with the tradition. Uh, because the reformers, God bless them, I'm going to end in just a moment, because I want to end on something that, that we and the reformers both agree on. Because it's important about today. It's important about this moment right now. But I'm just trying to explain to you the reason why many have never heard this, or that it's, you know, it's not just Bible ignorance, or it's, there, there's a reason they say, stay away from Revelation. What? Jesus said, if you re blessed is the man who reads this book. The apostles, read what Paul said here. He took every bit of this stuff about the second coming literally. Mary took it literally. The angels took it literally. Zechariah took it literally. Jesus Christ himself took it literally. Then you just got this jack wagon that comes along 150 years later that says, oh, it's all just an allegory. Then you've got a, you've got a cult, rebranded church that all of a sudden uh, says, nope, it's just an allegory. And then just right down to the day, you've got good, well-meaning people. I'm not picking on people for what was established years and years ago, uh, but that's the reason why you've just never heard it. But if you read the Bible and just read it for what it says, which Origen said not to do, <laughs> um, then, then, but if you read it for what it says, you read it and you see what it says, and you can know it and understand it. All right. I said I was going to end on a point that, me, that us and the Reformers definitely agree on, and that's this. Salvation by grace through faith. Amen. Because all of what I'm telling you about is not the mushy side of the Christmas story, I'll admit. How many of you get a warm, fuzzy feeling when you hear about the judgment of God? Because that's what it's talking about in Thessalonians, the day of the Lord. Not too many of us do, but you want to know why? Most of our brothers and sisters over the last 2,000 years, they get a warm, fuzzy feeling when it comes to hearing about the judgment of God and the wrath of God. You want to know why? Because all they've been is persecuted and abused from, 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 from start to finish. 
You know, and, and I'm telling you, uh, does, does, does not the blood of all the innocent unborn children that have been killed, does that not cry out for justice somewhere? It just cries out for justice. Like, this can't be okay. Uh, I mean, you start seeing, and, and you think about our dear brothers and sisters in some of these other countries. You know, whether it's uh, North Korea, whether it's China, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's in um, uh, Africa, you know, to where you have these, uh, these Muslim groups coming in and, and, and killing. And, uh, and, and before they uh, kill a man, they'll uh, rape his daughter, his wife and daughters in front of him and then kill him. And uh, you, you think those people aren't ready for some justice? And some wrath, we've been so blessed in America because of the principles that we've been founded upon. But there's a side of the Christmas story that says Jesus is coming and uh, he's got some business to deal with. He's, he, he, he's going to be, there's going to be some wrath, there's going to be some people answer for what's going on, all right? And that's literally uh, part of the day of the Lord. But I end as we all stand here, and I appreciate your patience tonight. Just on the beautiful, beautiful message that definitely applies to you today, and that is this. You're, are you saved by grace through faith? Amen. Jesus literally died. He literally rose again so that you might literally be saved. Amen. So that your literal sins might literally be forgiven. And if you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, man, do not miss him. Amen. Do not miss him. Jesus, the government shall be upon his shoulders. I don't care what those jokers say. I know what the Bible says, amen? And so, uh, Lord, I thank you so much for your faithfulness and goodness, and I thank you, dear God, for this, this message of Christmas, God, that uh, we don't get goosebumps over maybe tonight. But, uh, Lord, there's, a, there's another side to it, Lord, and realizing that just like you came the first time, Lord, you're going to come the second time, God. You, you made so many promises that even in Zechariah's song, it's all going to happen, but it's not happened yet. But it's going to. It's going to when you literally come again. And so we thank you for that, dear Lord. And I just pray that you'll bless us and help us as we depart. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.